Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. All right, all right. Good morning, C4. So glad that you're here this morning. I want to say hello to many of you watching, listening online, including all the women away. Thanks so much for uh, coming back. We can't wait till you're home, some of us. Uh, we're in Mark chapter 10 today, and so if you've got a Bible, we'd love you to turn there. I was driving up with some of the staff uh, at a staff retreat in the last two weeks, and as we were driving up, I-, I looked out into the fields, and I don't know if you've ever seen this just north of Toronto and a lot of the farms, but they gather, I think it's grass or hay, and they bale it, and then they cover it in, in white plastic. Do you know what I'm talking about? And there are huge lines. And I started laughing out loud, and people in the car asked, asked me, well, John, why are you laughing out loud? I said, well, I'm just recalling years ago when I was working at a camp, we had a German exchange student with us, and, and we convinced him that they were marshmallows, and because he loved marshmallows, and in Germany, they didn't have them at the time, and we said, well, this is how marshmallows are grown in Canada, in large, large uh, things like that, and, and then we cut them, and we harvest them, and he was like, oh, this is amazing. It was so great. He actually took his phone out, started sending pictures to his friends in Germany, uh, just brilliant. Brilliant. I just loved it. And all summer long, every time we drove somewhere, he's like, oh, the marshmallows, they're so big, I can't wait to eat some more. And we would all just laugh. It's like when I used to go to the States and I handed out Canadian tire money as our currency, Canadian currency. And I convinced, you know, it's the one cent dollar, the, the five cent, the 25. And I convinced a lot of my American friends, our national symbol, do you remember this, was the tire with the wings. Uh, I, I said, well, GM's in the north, so that, that's our symbol. We're that connected. And so, you know, I used to do, well, I have sick sense of humor. That's just very simple. But what was interesting is as I watched and reflected on that, my German exchange student friend and my American friends, they believed something 100% and they were absolutely wrong. They were convinced because they had believed it. Someone had lied to them, but they had believed that it was true. And it wasn't true at all. Now that I want you to have this burn in your mind this morning because that actually is the condition of all sorts, actually millions of people at this moment spiritually. They fundamentally believe something is true and it's wrong. And that's where we're going to go today with this new story. Now, as Joanna was just saying, we're in this amazing season, and we're in this series called Encounters with Jesus. And week after week, through conversations, coffee, and through the baptism tank, we continually are hearing stories of people meeting Jesus for the first time, being transformed by him, being changed by him, coming back to him. Even this week, a woman that my wife and I had been inviting out for like three years suddenly started coming through another person we invited out. She became a Christian on Wednesday night and was led to Christ by someone who became a Christian two weeks ago. Like, think about that. Just, uh, like... Un- unbelievable stories. And so we're seeing this. So that's why we started doing this series called Encounters with Jesus. And we were looking at six different people who are fundamentally different who Jesus encounters. And why are we doing this? Well, number one, you might be that person. You might be the person I'm actually preaching about today, and you actually might meet Jesus personally at this moment. 
We also want to observe how Jesus dealt with a variety of people so we can learn, so we can interact and, and love and challenge and confront and encourage them into eternal life. And this is a visionary series, whether you know it or not. This is a visionary series. This is preparation spiritually, mentally, theologically for us, for the thousands that are going to be assigned to this church and the other churches in the region. And then as we've been doing at the end of every sermon, we're going to take a moment to pray for this type of person, not out of pride or arrogance, but asking God to encounter this type of person across the region that we're assigned to and that we love. Now, four weeks ago, if you were with us, four Sundays ago, we started with some of the hardest people who find Jesus quite unreasonable. And like I've said week after week, people who find Jesus very difficult actually tend to be good, moral, kind, nice people. They can be deeply secular, fundamentally religious, spiritual in the middle. But when they hear what Jesus claims about himself and they understand the implications of his call, they tend to walk away from Jesus because Jesus says being good, kind, civically involved, religious, spiritual, will never allow you, will never give you access to God. You will never find full purpose in your life. And eternal life, forgiveness of sins, will not be accepted. In other words, there is no scale. God doesn't grade on a curve. Either you accept Christ or you're lost. And, and people go, I'm not sure I can handle that. And we looked at the story of Nicodemus, right? A very significant intellect who also was fundamentally good, deeply religious, involved religiously, civically in his community, a man of high standing. And communities would have said, if anyone knows God already, it's that guy. And yet Jesus comes along and we find out that though he is fully engaged, he's fully lost. And then we move from him, a supposed insider, week two to a supposed outsider, we had an encounter with Jesus and a woman caught in adultery. And the text says it was probably a lifestyle issue, not just a one-time thing. And so people wanted to actually kill her, murder her. Jesus intervenes and stops a stoning, but then says to her, I do not condemn you. So it expresses profound holy love to her, but then does something that, again, is deeply offensive, especially to the middle-class psyche of Canada. Then he said, since you've met me, you've experienced forgiveness and you are no longer condemned, go and leave your life of sin. In other words, God is love, that is, he is welcoming, but he will never affirm anything that violates the scriptures or God's will. So when you encounter Jesus, you'll always be forgiven and loved, but you will be called to a new level of holiness and sacrifice that threatens what we love. Well, then we looked at a third person, we looked not at an insider or an outsider. We looked at, looked at a man who hated Jesus, hated his followers, a, a man of profound intellect, very educated, spoke multiple languages, very smart, deeply religious, yet was filled with anger and blinded by hate and was involved in the killing of the first Christian and was systematically hunting Christians to put them in jail. He is an ancient version of ISIS that we're seeing today. And yet he met the Lord Jesus Christ Christ in a vision, was radically transformed, as Joanna just said, moved from persecutor to preacher. His name was Saul, and he became Paul. Well, today we're going to move to another person. Today we're going to meet someone unlike the other three. Today we're going to meet a wealthy young man who's actually in the Gospels called a ruler. Let me give you the background of this guy. He's from the 1% of his day. He's very much like actually the young professionals that are flocking to Toronto by the hundreds of thousands. Now, as we're about to read in the passage, this is pretty significant. This guy is not a shark. 
This guy is, no, no, this guy is a really good, really kind guy who happens to be loaded. Like this guy has tons of money. And if you listen to the story, if you hung out with his friendship circle, I think they would have said, look, this guy is the real deal. Great job, really significant cash. But this guy, if anyone's looking for God, it's him. He's not a skeptic. He, he is a seeker. He's sincere, he's honest, and he wants answers. He knows that even his, his profound life isn't enough. It reads like this in Mark ten seventeen, As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Eager, genuine, heartfelt. The story begins by this young guy running towards Jesus, and then it says he fell on his knees. Actually, in the original language, it says he begged Jesus. Now, just let that sit this morning. Begging. Begging people only do it when they're desperate. You beg when you need something. You beg when you're fundamentally aware of something that is missing. So a young guy, as we're about to find out, with serious cash and money from a very significant family and has an amazing job, knows he needs more. That is a rare person in any culture, in any time. Good teacher, he says. Most honorable rabbi. That's how he starts. Now, when I read this, I went, okay, I've read this many times and I moved on until I started to study and, and I missed something huge. That little phrase, good teacher, is like massive. If you read all the Jewish readings and writings around Jesus' time, you can't actually find this quote given to any other teacher or rabbi. Like this is over the top. This isn't just compliment. This is like sincere tribute. And the guy says, look, I have one question for you. What do I need to do to be okay with God? I want eternal life. I want to be born again. How do I enter the kingdom of God? How do I live in, enter, and stay under the reign and rule of God? I want to welcome him, embrace him. I want to accept it all. I'm in. Notice what he says. What must I do? What's my duty to God? I'm seeking Jesus, like really seeking. I'm successful, I'm rich, I come from money, I'm a ruler, I've got a strong job, I've got a good life. Actually, I'm a really good guy, and yet it's like I have this emptiness. I've got this doubt, I've got this gnawing hunger deep down in my guts. Everything says everything's right, yet it's wrong. And Jesus, I've heard, I've heard that you can answer my deepest questions, so help me please, like I'm really open. Look, I'm begging you. This is like a preacher's dream right here. We all wish it was this easy. This is like low-hanging fruit. We wish every conversation was like this. They just run up. Tell me what I must do. No problem. Jesus, like, but that's not how Jesus responds. Jesus looks at this man, looks into this scenario, what I would consider one of the best open conversations I could ever have as a Christian, let alone a pastor, and Jesus knows this man more than this man knows himself. And this is how Jesus responds. Are you ready? Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. Uh, Jesus, uh, just a question, overreaction, just a possibility. Have you read the book, How to Make Friends and Influence People? I'm just wondering. Has your communications department not taught you that when someone wants your product and runs up and actually like begs, you're not snippy, right? You get this, right? And Jesus totally, and by the way in the text, rudely gets in his face. 
Now, it's interesting, in the Jewish faith, the phrase good is only applied fully to God himself. And what Jesus is doing is, is this. He's asking the question, do you really know what you're saying? Do you really know me? Do you really know yourself? See, Jesus is setting up the conversation to get at the heart of the question, who is good and who is not good? And he's basically saying, your view of good is not God's view of good. Now, this seemingly harsh reaction is meant to jolt this guy to his senses. See, this man thinks he can be good by who he is, where he comes from, and what he's done. See, the phrase that exposes his deepest heart convictions is this, what must I do? Well, Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony, don't defraud, honor your mom, honor your dad. Jesus points to half the Ten Commandments. They're the ones that are, by the way, horizontal, not vertical. They have to do with how you treat a neighbor after you've encountered God and been changed by him. Now, I just want to stop for a moment and remind all of us once again, or tell you for the first time, the nature of the Ten Commandments, because this matters. The nature of the Ten Commandments. God didn't wake up. I've preached this before. God didn't wake up one day and go, well, I just don't like murder or lying or stealing because I don't like them. No, no. The Ten Commandments are not laws separated from God. They stem from his nature. The Ten Commandments are revelation of divine DNA. When you see the Ten Commandments, you see the very character of God himself. He says no to murder because he's a life-giving God. He hates stealing because he's a generous gift-giving God. He hates adultery because he's a covenant-keeping God. He says no to idols or other gods because he is truth, and any human or demonic attempt to replace him is nothing but sin. So Jesus says, well, you know all those rules that reflect God about your neighbor. Look how the young man responds. He says, well, teacher, all these I have done since I am a boy. The phrase boy means 12. I've been doing this since junior high, Jesus. I chose to follow, obey. I was yoked to God's law. Look, I am the real deal. I'm still on my knees here, right? I'm faithful, and look at what I've done. I'm good, I'm confident, because I've kept all these commandments since I was 12 years old. Look at me, I'll show you how good I am. Now on the surface, this story gets better and better and better. I want you just to think about this. This guy is good, he's kind, he's faithful, he's obedient, he's well-spoken, he honors people, he's young, and he's rich. If he's good-looking, get out the roses. This is like a bachelor show for Christians, right? Like, like, just think about this. This is everything you want in a person. Yet behind the security and the doing good and the religiosity and the family and the status and the money is lostness. He believes the marshmallows are growing in the field. See, this man is conflicted at one level. Otherwise, he would never come and ask the question that transcends all the good things most of us would die for. Now, this next verse is so key. It says then that Jesus looked at him and loved him. We think Jesus is angry at the guy because of his response. No, no, no. Jesus loves this young man. And let me say again with authority this morning, Jesus loves you too. 
No shame here, no sarcasm, no humiliation, but humility is about to be dealt. See, Jesus loves this young ruler so much, and because he loves him so much, he's going to expose the real depth of his need, his sin, his blindness, and his law-breaking. So Jesus says these next words out of great love. There's just one thing you lack. Wow. Just, you got 99 things going for you, just one thing. That's pretty amazing, right? 90, just one. There's just one thing you need to do. I want you to go and I want you to sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and then you'll find treasure in heaven, or you'll have treasure in heaven. Then you can come and follow me, implying you get eternal life. There's only one thing you lack, man, and it's just this conversation we need to have. Now think about it. This man has no needs. He's rich. He's a power. In power, he's a ruler. He doesn't need to kill or steal because when you have money, you're well off. You don't need to go there if you don't want to. But Jesus is exposing the true condition of this young man. And by the way, he is exposing the true condition of every human on earth because as one scholar coined it, this man is poor rich. Surrender the one thing that you trust in more than God and you can come follow me and you get eternal life. The bomb drops. Jesus not only threatens the equilibrium of this man's amazing life, he threatens this man's lifestyle at its core. Now, by the way, I just need to stop and make this point. This passage has been preached terribly so many times. This is not a general rule declaring that every follower of Jesus is now called to give up all their... No. The Bible is not against having wealth. Wealth is not sinful. Having wealth is not evil. As one pastor was saying, I was listening to this week, if wealth was evil and we were supposed to give up all of our wealth, then how does it in Acts chapter 2 says they went and they met in the temple courts and then went back to their homes and ate with glad... Like, he's not against this. But wealth is highly dangerous. And if you are given any amount of wealth, it demands great responsibility. Now, for this man, and many of you may be watching, listening, or here today, wealth, that is the desire for it, the having of it, has become our love, our trust. It is the idol we kiss and worship and hold on to. It becomes one of the greatest spiritual impediments to eternal life. This is how Jesus put it in Matthew 16, 25. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, But whoever loses their life for me will find it. That's what Jesus is saying. So the guy comes and begs Jesus sincerely, how do I get eternal life? And Jesus turns around and says, by giving up all you love and trust in and loving me and trusting in me instead. And for this man, money, that's what his life was about. This was his fallback position. This was his security, savior, leader, identity, and Lord. And Jesus says, like, seriously, eternal life that goes beyond 80, right? At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. You know, this is one of the few, maybe the only example I can find in the gospel so far that someone walks away sad from Jesus. 
Many, many, many people come to Jesus uh, broken, sad, in bondage, and leave restored or full of joy. Or others come deeply skeptical and leave with hate, bitterness, and resentment in their hearts. But this man is almost in a category unto himself. He leaves full of disappointment, sorrow, sadness, still lost. I wonder if he went trying to find another teacher whose opinion would make it less costly. See, there's nothing more tragic than this. His love of family and possessions actually meant more to him than his desire for eternal life. And here's the great tragedy. What he didn't understand is the one that he was talking to doesn't just give out eternal life. He is eternal life. God in flesh is sitting right there. He's kneeling before him, and he missed him. Jesus says there's no other way to be a disciple. There's no other way to be close. No other way to have purpose in this life or eternal life unless you are willing to give up the thing that defines you the most. See, there's no gray here. There's no third way or option here. There's no other way. There's only one answer. As the young, wealthy ruler asks, Jesus sincerely out of love responds. And then what happens? He left and went back to a life that most of us think is fundamentally awesome and amazing. As the guy is walking off, Jesus turns to his closest friends and says these words. How hard. How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? This would have been so shocking to the disciples. I, I guarantee you, jaws dropped at this moment. See, in the Old Testament, wealth was a mark of God's favor. Wealth was a sign that God was with you. Actually, wealth was a sign you were in relationship with him. What was said as they went into the promised land? Deuteronomy 8.18, But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant. But now Jesus, the Messiah, God in flesh, says how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. How hard it is for those that have much, have things to meet God. How many distractions they have. How many barriers they have. How riddled with difficulty they are. Wow, what a word for us. We all want to be rich. Rich may Not be the best thing, but it sure makes life easier. I was thinking, I remember Queen Latifah once saying in an interview, what do you, someone asked, you like being rich? And she said, well, it doesn't make me happy at all, but man, it makes my life less difficult. And Jesus comes and says, oh, but when it comes to eternal things, the difficulty grows exponentially. Oh no, by the way, if you're one of the people sitting in here saying you're not rich this morning, just so you know, globally, All of us in this room are at least in the top 50%. 99% of us are probably in the top 15%. I'm going to preach this tonight to the young adults because I'm preaching out of James. If you have $2,200 in assets, this is the stats currently, you are richer than 50% of the world. Assets, not cash. Jesus comes and he says... How difficult it is for the rich to inherit eternal life. 
Well, the disciples, verse 24, are amazed at his words, but Jesus said it again. Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. He repeats it just in case they're not getting it or don't believe it. Now, it's interesting. This is the first and only time in the book of Mark where Jesus calls his followers children. Why? Because as I was reading this week, one scholar said, children have no real concept of money, right? I can attest to that these days, big time. They have no, uh, they have no, but when you're an adult, you know how hard it is to get, you know, you want to, listen, he said, children, children. Well, the disciples were amazed at his words. Don't read that well. They are thunderstruck, taken aback, flabbergasted, dumbfounded, stunned to near silence. It's like a chill went down their spiritual spine. This is not a good like, hey, surprise party. We all love you. This isn't like you just won the lottery. This is like, I'm sorry, you're dying. You're terminal. You have three months. Because basically, spiritually, this is what Jesus is saying. And here's what they're understanding. If that blessed guy doesn't get in and the rich don't get in, If that guy who's like, oh my goodness, altar super seeker doesn't get in, then we're all done. This shuts the door on everyone. Jesus, things can't be this hard. Things can't be this bad, right? Notice again, it's not the wealth. It's not the material possessions or the family pedigree that closes the door. It's actually trusting and having faith in those things. See, this story is like a man who's running at a door and at a door yelling, I want to open this door. I want to open this door. But while he's saying it, he's putting all his weight against the door so it can't open. Jesus says how hard it is. And then Jesus goes even farther He says it a third time where he says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now at this time, the camel was the largest animal in this area. And so he says, picture the largest animal, picture a little needle, and imagine it is easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for any rich person to get eternal life. Let me put it in our language today. It is easier for a 747 to go through your front door than it is for a rich person to find God through Jesus. Jesus and have eternal life. Do you believe that? Salvation is not open. Salvation is impossible. The metaphor shows how absurd the conversation is. Well, it says the disciples were even more amazed and they said to each other, well, then who can be saved? In the text here, this is harsh. They're upset. They're turning to each other and saying, well, that's it. Jesus, this is, too f- this is extreme. We're exacerbated. This, this is, I'm indignant. There you go again. Jesus, extreme, lacking clarity. Just be realistic. Well, who can be saved then? That's the question, actually. It's not easy. The road is not broad. Actually, it's impossible. But then there's a gift here that you miss in the middle maybe of the anger. See, Jesus is basically making the equal call to all. No one starts with favor with God. No one has an edge with God, no matter their religious, ethnic background, no matter their economic standing. All of us are lost. All human beings are rich in the sense that we hold on to something that we want more than God or more than eternal life. It is hard. Actually, it is impossible for all. For anyone to meet God. Now, if the passage ended here, oh my goodness, we'd be done. Go in peace, have social and die. Like, what? What do we do? But Jesus gives hope. He shows us that as this young man is walking away from what he has just given up, he turns and he says once again to his friends, with man, with human beings, this is impossible. Ah, but not with God. All things are possible with God. 
Entering the kingdom of God, getting eternal life, salvation, being born again, it is not possible. It is beyond us. It is beyond human ability. It is futile. It is beyond our so-called seeking. Rich, poor, middle class, upper middle class, lower class, students, young adults, retired. It's all the same. Jesus is basically exposing the true condition of humanity before a holy and loving God. Paul would put it this way in Romans 3, 9. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? No, not at all. For we've already made the charge that Jews and non-Jews are all alike under the power of sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, not even one. There's no one who comprehends, understands, oh, and there is no one who seeks God. And you go, excuse me, I, I, no, that's not true. No, that's not true. That young man was seeking God. And Jesus comes along and says, no, no. Seeking implies that you really want the answer and there are no conditions. There is no one who is seeking God. Not really. Not really. It is impossible. But then Jesus says, but it is possible with God. It's why Paul would later pen Ephesians 2, 8, for it is by grace you get saved through faith. It's never from yourself. It's a gift from God, not by work so no one can boast. Salvation, entrance into the kingdom must be done through faith. Trust in another's work, another's grace, another's actions. Salvation is a miracle every single time. Salvation is completely undeserved. We are unworthy and yet it is given so joyfully to us. But you will always go away sad. You will never enjoy God. You will never enter the kingdom of God unless you are willing to give up everything and say to Jesus, you be my savior and you be my Lord. I will not trust in anyone, anything, no other faith, no other God, no other religion. I will not trust in sex, money, or power. All those things in right context under your will are fine, but I will not have my life defined by those anymore. That is the beginning part of the conversation, not the middle part. Well, Peter, Peter, always talking, foot and mouth disease, probably a little jealous at this point, says to Jesus, well, we've left everything to follow you. Can you see him? And Jesus says, truly I tell you, no one who's left home or brother or sister or mother or father, children or field for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Home, brother, sister, mother, children, fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But the first will be last and the last will be first. Jesus says we all started by saying yes to him as Savior and Lord. And then we continue to make the ongoing sacrifice for Jesus, for the kingdom and the gospel, because his love is worth it. And we want his good news to spread. So those people that think they're on the right side of history through wealth or any other perspective will not be in the life to come. We choose as Christians to give up more and more and more to Jesus Christ. Our money, our reputation, our kids, our family, our savings, our incomes, knowing that true reward that lasts comes in the life to come. And this not only helps us suffer well, this not only helps to find sacrifice, small or large, it gives us all purpose and meaning and hope that makes no sense to the world. In the end, Jesus says, we will be rewarded for following the Lord Jesus Christ, giving up for the Lord Jesus Christ, suffering for the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you choose in this life not to walk away in the now, you will become the first in the not not yet. So here's the question. 
Are you the rich, young ruler? I mean, what a story. We're all rich in something, right? And God doesn't grade on curves. But I want to remind you in the middle of this, like Jesus looks at you and loves you. And at this moment, some of you, have, as you've been sitting here, have realized that, that though you are seeking sincerely, there are all sorts of conditions you keep bringing to the table. You know, it was Mark Twain who wrote, it ain't those parts of the Bible I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts I do understand that bother me. Jesus doesn't reject possessions. Jesus isn't angry that you own a home or that you have a car or that you have... Irrelevant. The question for you who are among us this morning and watching online who have the Christian title or not the Christian title but you do not know the Lord Jesus, the scales have not fallen from your... Like, if this is about trust, this is about worship, this is about faith, just stop and ask right now if you're a genuine seeker, what do you hold on to that if Jesus at this moment asked you to give it up to get eternal life, you would go away sad? See, the heart of the matter is, if you want salvation and forgiveness of sins and eternal life and life and resurrection power, if death should not and does not need to be the end for you, if you want God-given purpose in this life, then you can't just come and seek Jesus and kneel before him and say, I'm interested in the conversation. The next step beyond meeting him and gathering among his community is you must accept him as Savior and Lord and lay down all that you trust in. See, when someone says Jesus is Savior, they're declaring, I know it is impossible for me to be saved. I need someone to bring me the life raft to get me out. And when you declare him at Lord, and they're the same conversation at the same time, you are declaring, I'm a slave to Jesus. His eternal life is worth any sacrifice. I'm willing to give up anything. He may not ask you, he may, but I am willing because he and his promises and his work and his love are better. So let's just do something. I want everyone to close their eyes. Would you do this, please? I know what happens at this point. Half the adults go, don't tell me to close my eyes. Okay, it's okay. Just... Close your eyes. If you're driving, don't close your eyes on the podcast. Just keep them open. <laughs> close your eyes, and I'm going to ask Jesus to do something. I'm just going to ask him now to show you who are seekers what he'd ask you to give up. So Holy Spirit, you're the Spirit of Christ. Would you come into this room And would you show people what you would ask them to give up for eternal life? In Jesus' name, I pray that nothing evil could stop this. And our own heart would not resist you. Do you have it in your mind if you're a seeker? Just listen. When he showed you, did it sound like scolding or hope? If it sounded like scolding, you're not seeking. Jesus comes at this moment. This is a holy moment to some of you who are rich, young rulers and says these words, I love you. Say for the first time it is impossible, but it's possible with God. 
If, if you are just at this moment saying, I must meet Jesus, I'm not going to go away sad. I am not going to be the guy who walks away. Then pray this, Lord Jesus Christ, I'm begging like that guy. And I'm willing to give up anything for eternal life. It is impossible for me, but it's possible because of who you are. So I believe that you're God. I believe that you lived I believe you died, you physically rose again, you cleared a path against sin and evil and death, and I say to you, give me eternal life. I lay down my most precious things at your feet. So save me, save me. I turn from a life of sin, and I want eternal life in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Two last things. To us as a church, can I just say something? Many of us have said yes in this room to Jesus, right? We're followers. We didn't go away sad. But can I just read this out of 1 Timothy 6, 17? And I, I would ask, could everyone just put their phones down? Like, just, just no Instagram accounts for a moment. <laughs> Paul commanded Timothy to say this to his people. And so I will do it here the same. And I say to myself too, I command those who are rich in this present world, by the way, that's all of us, not to be arrogant or put our hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. But put your hope in God, C4, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So we get to enjoy life, right? But I command you and myself to do good. Be rich in good deeds, C4. Be generous and willing to share. In this way, you will lay up treasure for yourself as a firm foundation for the coming age so that you may take hold of life that is truly life. We may have not become the rich young ruler at the beginning and walked away sad, but it's always a temptation to go back. And so the scriptures are clear that we would be a generous people who understand that wealth, we are just stewards of it for a period. There's no U-Hauls, right, to heaven. Can't take anything. And so we're just stewards and that we'd be generous in our words and our actions and in our money in the things that God calls us to do. So why don't we stand and end this way? So would you stand with me as we prepare to lead in worship and sing back? And let's just take a moment as we do every service to pray. Because honestly, Durham and the GTA is filled with not probably just hundreds of thousands, probably millions of rich young rulers, good, sincere, open, hardworking people who are completely lost. And so, not out of arrogance, because we've all experienced grace, let's together pray. Oh God of heaven, Lord Jesus Christ, who loves people beyond even their own love for themselves, we together, and could you open your hands to heaven with me? Would you do that? Just do this. Jesus Christ, hear our cry again. We cry this out week in and week out. Please, Lord, save the rich young rulers in Durham. The thousands and thousands of people who are like this. Save them in our families and in our neighborhoods and our schools. Lord God, look upon Toronto. Look upon Toronto. Now like this epicenter of culture and money and influence around the world now. Oh God, Save so many rich young rulers. We pray that in this season, 
the stories we would hear would not be that they went away sad, that the people would lay down everything they love to find eternal life. We want to admit as a church, what we're asking for is impossible, impossible, impossible. This makes no sense. But we do hold the promise now as a church, all things are possible with God. All things are possible with God. All things are possible with God. So God, come and do the impossible in our neighborhoods and in our families, in our region, in our church. Lord, save the rich young ruler from trusting in things that have no lasting value. Thank you for hearing our prayers. And with great expectation, we can't wait to hear the stories in baptism tanks in the next five years of people who say, I used to be that guy. And Lord, also help us to be a generous church, not hoarding, not, not trusting, not buying into the lie of our culture that by what we own, we are made well or whole. Help us, Lord, to know the power of our identity in the love of Jesus Christ that transcends wealth. We ask this in the name of God the Father, the name of God the Son, the name of God the Holy Spirit. Amen, amen, amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.